our week. Amen. Last week, we began uh, to look at a subject uh, that in today's day and age has become controversial. Um, But there's only controversy when you don't have clarity. And so we want to bring clarity. God's word is all about clarity. God is not the author of confusion. The Bible says that Satan, the enemy, is the author of confusion. And um, so when God speaks, he wants clarity on a subject. He doesn't want to confuse you or have you walk away going, ah, I don't really understand. Um, And so controversy has crept in the church and controversy has crept in specifically to this subject on grace. uh, Because I believe in this day and age more than ever, an understanding of grace is more necessary and more needed. Uh, Because the Bible even says that people will invent new ways to sin. Uh, Sin can even seem fun. For a while, the Bible says. And so the more that we allow sin, the more that we are held back from the life that God designed us for. When we go all the way back to Genesis chapter one, verse 26, we see a picture of man and woman, Adam and Eve, uh, that we don't see today. And we all wish that we could get back to the garden and get back to paradise. But Jesus came to redeem us back to Genesis chapter one, verse 26. What is that? To place man in dominion. To place man in charge once again. And so Jesus came back to do that. Jesus came back to restore that. And the way that he did that was through grace. Grace was never designed. God did not implement grace to simply cover man's sin. He implemented grace to give man power over sin. We said this last week that the very thing that God hated the most entered the very thing that God loved the most. God loves you more than you'll ever know. But he hates sin more than you'll ever know. He, he just flat out hates it. And we said this last week that grace did not come to change God's view of sin. Grace did not show up to give God an, an alternative look at sin and say, well, it's not that bad. Or don't worry about it. That's not why grace showed up. Okay? God doesn't look at sin any differently today than he did in Genesis chapter 3 the first time it showed up. He sees sin as the ultimate separator between him and his most loved, prized possession, you and I. That's what sin does. Sin separates us. And when we're separated from the king, we cannot fulfill the purpose for which he brought us here. And sent us here. Okay? So this is why grace has been revealed. We said last week that we've got to first understand how powerful sin is. Because, see, here's the problem. If I dumb down sin, then I'll dumb down the thing that took care of sin. If I dumb down the power of sin in my life, then I'll dumb down the power of grace in my life. If I weaken sin, then I will weaken grace. So last week, you know, we hammered pretty hard. And those of you that were here know, you know, at the end of the service, you could feel like, man, you know, I'm just, golly, sin is a struggle. Sin is powerful. And it is. I'm not here to make sin sound like something that's just, ah, you know, it's just a child's toy. Sin is powerful. Sin is powerful enough that you can have God smack dab in your face, tell you what to do. And still sin. Sin is powerful. 
But grace is that much stronger. That's why this is so exciting, because no matter how powerful sin is, grace is that much more powerful. And so when we are looking at the subject of grace, I first have to help us understand how powerful sin is. And we said this last week that, look, we are the ones that have the issue with sin and the sinner. We're the ones that cannot differentiate. We're the ones that when we look at a sinner, we only see the sin that they're in, not the person. And this is the exciting thing to look at, that nobody, you could be standing right next to someone that's sinning in a way that's just so provocative, so disgusting, so nasty. You're like, how in the world could you even think to do that? And it may creep you out. Oh, that just, that's just, how could you, why would you want to do that? It's so disgusting. What you're doing, how do you not see that you're wrong? But here's the thing. Nobody hates the sin more than God does. (laughs) No matter how much you hate it, no matter how much you see what they're doing, you're cheating. You're lying. You're perverting a relationship. You're murdering. And as much as you hate it, As much as it may discomfort you, nobody is more discomforted by the sin than God. But then we take it a step further. Nobody loves that person more than God. He hates the sin more than anybody, but loves the sinner more than anybody. And that's what's so exciting, that God has learned to differentiate between sin and the sinner. The thing that's on the inside is on the inside of something that he still loves, and he has proven it by his action. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That is proof of the love. He didn't stop it. For God so loved The world, period. Why? Because love is action. Love is identified in what do I do? And so for God so loved, how much did he love him? That he gave his most prized, most valuable possession. The only thing that he had just one of. I love pointing that out because we don't see that. When we read that verse, we don't see that. God gave away the only thing in the entire year. Everything belongs to God. It's all his. The Bible says the heavens and the earth and the heavens below, they all belong to him. He could have given us anything, but he gave us the one thing that he only had one of his only begotten son. Why? So that we would not perish, but we would have everlasting life. That's the love of God. And so last week we took a look at the picture of sin because the the problem is, is we won't fix a problem until we know we have a problem. We won't ask for help until we know we need help. And so identifying that sin is a problem, sin is an issue, sin is separating us from the king. That helps us understand, I need help. 
And that was last week's message. We need help. So go to Deuteronomy chapter five. Deuteronomy chapter five. And we're going to talk about something. This is another thing that. You know, there's been misconception about. And look, in in this series, what I intend to do is, is bring clarity. Like I said, I want us to clearly understand all of grace. Why do we need grace? Why did God implement grace? When did when did grace show up? I mean, I always tell instructors and people that are teaching the, the greatest way to enter into a subject is ask yourself the five W's who, what, when, where and why. So if I can ask who and what and when and where and why, those will give me the answers that I need. And in grace, that's what we've done. Who needs grace? Who gave us grace? When did we need grace? When did we receive grace? Why do we need grace? What is grace? What is grace not? Helping us ask these questions will set us on a course where we can identify grace because I know this, that anything I don't clearly understand, I cannot live out. If I don't understand grace in my life, then I won't live out grace in my life. But... All I know is it's a gift that God has given us, and so we need to discover it and find out how to operate it. Deuteronomy chapter 5 says this, verse 31. But as for you, God is speaking to Moses, as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and judgments, which you shall teach them, the people. That they may observe them in the land which I am going to possess. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For you shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you. That you may live and that it may be well with you. And that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. This is right after God uh, is uh, instituting the Ten Commandments. And what is showing up here is God is introducing an opportunity for man to get it right. He's, uh, he's introducing an opportunity for man to live right. I mean, look at the promise given here. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live in that it may be well with you. Anybody want to live and it, anybody want it to be well with you this morning? We want to live and we want it to be well with us that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. Isn't it a terrible thing to possess something and not get to enjoy it? And so God is identifying here. I'm getting ready to send you into a land. And look, if you do everything I'm asking you to do, if you follow the commands and the statutes and the laws that I'm about to bring, You will live in that land. It will be well with you. Your enemies won't come against you. I'll turn your enemies into your friends. Uh, They will come alongside you. They'll be your greatest ally. I will make sure that you live long in this land, prosper and possess it. And nobody will ever be able to overcome you. Sounds awesome. (laughs) I mean, it sounds like a bona fide way to overcome in life. How simple is that? How easy is that? All I got to do is do what God tells me to do and all the blessings will come. So simple. Well, the problem was 
is that there were a lot of commands. Okay, we know of the Ten Commandments, but really in the Old Testament, uh, scholars have counted at least 613 Old Testament laws and commands. That's a lot. And God has tried ever since to simplify this thing down. And, and they, they even asked Jesus, they said, what, what, what is the greatest commandment? Because there's so many of them. There's got to be one that's greater than all the others. And Jesus is able to break it down from 613 to 10. Eventually, he says, just love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. And the second is equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The commands that God gave were twofold. Number one, they had to do with our position to God. Secondly, they had to do with our position to each other. Even if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four have to do with how we serve God. Have no other gods before me. Set aside the Sabbath that it would be holy. But then the bottom six have to do with each other. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not murder. Do not uh, commit adultery. Do not uh, want the things, envy the things that your neighbor has. Those have to do with each other. So it's partly how do I serve God and what's my position to God? And then secondly is how do I serve my brother? How do we treat each other. And so the command sounds very simple. Obey the command, receive the blessing. Now, here's the thing. They were not evenly split out of the 613, about 213 of them were positive. You shall do this. You shall do that. You shall receive this. You shall receive that. It's pretty simple. But then the other ones the other 400-something commands were negative. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. And if you do this, a, a curse will come upon you. Those were the commands. And we've struggled with the law. Man has always struggled with the law. I mean, look at Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. This was God's command to Joshua. This book of the Law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Sounds so easy. So simple. Keep the law and you will be successful. This is God's answer to success. This is God's answer to prosperity. Just keep the law. Keep it in front of you. Meditate on it. That means you're speaking it. Observe to do. The law of God was always meant to be obeyed. The law of God was always meant to be obeyed, not disobeyed. Pretty simple. Look what David said in Psalm chapter 119, verse 11. Psalm chapter 119, verse 11. Your word have I hidden in my heart. That I might not sin against you. Your word have I hidden in my heart. That I might not sin against you. What you do with God's word determines what God's word does for you. 
What you do with God's word determines what God what God's word does for you. I mean, these are very descript instructions. Hide the word where in your heart, not in your mind, not come to church and hear it and then walk away and never look at it again. Meditate, speak it. That, that means there's discipline involved. Look, the Christian life is one of the most disciplined lives of anybody. I mean, our military know nothing about the life of a believer. It is so disciplined. It is such a strict regimen to live like God has called us to live. But there are so many blessings, so many promises that follow a disciplined life of a believer. So what you do with God's word determines what God's word does for you. But there was a problem with the law. There was a problem with the law. The law only came to do one thing. The law simply came to identify the problem. But the law did not contain the power to fix it. I like to put it this way. Say you're in a restaurant. And you get up to go to the bathroom and use the restroom. You go to wash your hands and you look in the mirror and you see that there's barbecue sauce on your cheek. It's been there the whole time. Right? The, the mirror identified a problem. But who gets mad at the mirror? Who punches the mirror and says, man, are you serious? Why are you, why are you telling me this right now? Why are you showing me this? And who, on the other side, expects the mirror to fix the problem? Can you, can you get that? Can you get that off of there? No, the mirror does one thing. Reveals a problem. It didn't cause the problem. And it can't fix the problem. But we get mad when the law shows up. We get mad when we read the word and it says, renew your mind. You're thinking, man, I haven't renewed my mind. The word shows up and it tells you to give your tithe and your offering. You think, I haven't been doing that. I'm not reading that Bible anymore. can't believe it. Tell me to do that. The audacity of the Bible to tell me what to do with my, the audacity of the Bible to tell me how to raise my kids, how to operate in my marriage, how to be the right husband and the right wife and the right father and the right mother. How dare the, the word of God tell me how to obey those that are in authority over me and to pray for those that are in authority over me. No, that the law didn't cause the problem. It only reveals it. It identifies it. I mean, what if you were sitting at the table and you look across the table and your friend says, hey, you got something. Do you get mad at them? You want to take this outside? We can, let's go outside. We'll deal with this. Telling me I got sauce on my cheek. No. Didn't cause the problem. The word of God, the law of God did not cause the problem. It simply revealed there's an issue here. Here's what, here is what the law does. It tells us the difference between right and wrong. So that way when you are sinning, you know you're sinning. 
is clear. That's why when you go to a brother, you go to a brother in the word. You don't just bring up your opinion about something. Well, I think that's wrong. I don't don't think that's the way to do it. No, you go to the word of God because the word of God is the mirror, James tells us. It's the mirror that identifies this is how you're living and it's not lining up with this and this is what we're supposed to do. It identifies right from wrong. It helps me know if I'm doing right or if I'm doing wrong. I mean, you look at the Ten Commandments, it's very simple. It's black and white, right and wrong. Thou shalt not steal. Did you steal that? Yeah. You're wrong. What do you mean? The Word of God says thou shalt not steal. So you're wrong. It simply identifies it. But here was the problem with the law. The law does not possess the power to fix your problem. The law came simply for identification, but it did not contain the power of sanctification. The law came to reveal and identify we've got a problem, but it does not contain the power to sanctify you, set you apart, make you holy and blameless before him, make you the spotless lamb that we're called to be. It does not give you power over sin. It just reveals to you you're in sin. And so we have to take care of the law problem. Look at Romans chapter 8. Look at Romans chapter 8. Now I know many of you are thinking, good, I don't, I don't have to do the law anymore. I don't have to obey the law. Just hang with me. We'll get there. Romans chapter 8. Verse 3, look what verse 3 says. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. What was the problem with the law? You. The law reveals right and wrong, but you, have, you still have a flesh suit. You still have a flesh on the outside that doesn't want to obey the law. In fact, Paul makes this very clear. The very thing that I want to do, I don't do. And then the very thing that I don't want to do, I end up doing that. This is the struggle that I live. I know what his word says. I know what the law says. I know that the law is revealing I shouldn't do this yet. I'm stuck doing it anyway. It's controlling me. It's your flesh. So what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin. In the flesh. I heard someone put it this way. The only passing grade that God accepts in life is 100%. He doesn't accept the 90. He doesn't accept the low A or a high A. He doesn't accept the 98 or a 99 or a 99.9. God only accepts a 100% as a passing grade. Now, the problem is, is none of you have scored 100% in life. Because you're not Jesus. But this is what grace does. Watch this. Grace applies Jesus' score to your report card. How awesome is that? Jesus got a 100 in life. He passed every test, every trial, never sinned. And God says, the score that he got, I'm applying it to you. You get a 100. That's what grace does. That's what grace does. 
And in the coming weeks, we're going to be able to get down in and look at how did Jesus purchase? How did he pay this price? How did he make grace available to us? This is what we've got to know. This is what we've got to understand. Let's read verse four. Uh, or, yeah, we haven't read verse four. That the righteous requirement of the law. See, there was still a requirement of the law. Even though you couldn't fulfill it, there was still a requirement. God has always de- demanded obedience. And he always will. God has always demanded obedience. And he always will. Obedience is what drives your life. Obedience is what drives your purpose. Obey the word of God. Obey what God has called you to do. Obey what he has said to do and how he has said to do it. Obedience is what drives us. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 verse 19. The law has shown up. The law has been revealed, but it cannot change me. It cannot cause me to live appropriately. It cannot cause me to do the things that God has called me to do. So Galatians chapter three, verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? Why did this law even show up? Remember, purpose reveals why. That answers the question, why? What purpose? Why do we have the law? It was added because of transgressions. What Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. What's that seed? You remember back when Adam and Eve sinned? You remember that uh, God went first to the snake and he said, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Who's that? The seed of the woman. Back there in Genesis chapter three. Till the seed See, God doesn't forget his word. Amen. God doesn't forget his word. He made a promise way back there in Genesis chapter 3. And we get all the way through the Old Testament wondering, where's the sea? Where's the sea? Where's the sea? Where's the sea? And he says that the law was added because of transgressions. We needed to identify this is right. This is wrong. We had to bring that revelation. But until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Look at this in the New Living Translations. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, the New Living. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who is the mediator between God and the people. These commands, these laws were given to Moses, who then in turn revealed them to God's people to say, hey, this is right. This is wrong. Don't do these things, because if you obey the law, you will prosper. You will live long. You will possess the land. That I've called you to possess. Let's keep on going down to verse. Go to verse 21. Go to verse 20. Let's just read it in the New Living. Verse 21 in the New Living Translation. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God 
by obeying it. Look, even the ones that held to the law, the strongest, even the ones that held to the law, the tightest, still were not considered righteous in right standing before God. You could do everything down by the letter of the law and still need grace. Law, this does not replace grace. Does not replace grace. Every single person that has ever come onto the face of this planet except for Jesus was in need of grace. What do sinners in the world need? Do they need someone to throw the book at them? No. They need grace. They need grace. Look, they could turn around and say, fine, I'll obey that. I'll do everything this tells me to do and still be in need of grace. Still die and go to hell. Still be powerless on this earth. Let's keep going. Verse 22. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Look, freedom from sin is what we all needed. Freedom from sin is what we all needed. And Jesus Christ is the only one that has supplied that. Jesus Christ is the only one that has made that available. Obeying this without accepting Jesus is not the answer. And we have to understand this because what happens is, is we become legalistic. This is where the legalistic church shows up and just says, well, if you would just do this, this and this, if you'd wear your clothes like this and comb your hair like this and not watch these kind of movies and 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 not do this type of thing and not say these type of words, then you'll be fine. That's called legalism. Legalism is man's attempt at restoring the kingdom back. Religion is man's attempt at trying to get back. I I, I mean, I just put it point blank. Religion and a religious lifestyle is the result of sin itself. Religion would have never come into this world if sin had never come into this world. Go back to the book and find, go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and find where God called Adam and Eve Christians. Or Pentecostals, or Baptists, or Methodists. Go back and show me that. No, religion showed up because we try to figure out how to get back to him. And legalism has showed up because we said, well, if I do this and do that and, 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 and dress like this and talk like this, I'll be closer to him. No, you won't. Sin is still in the picture. And unless you believe in Jesus Christ, you'll never get to him. We've got to identify this. If we're going to learn about grace and identify the power of grace, we've got to find out what grace came to take over. Verse 23. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. 
We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. The law gave people an opportunity to try to live right until Jesus showed up. Verse 24. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came and protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. Verse 25. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. This is awesome. This is exciting that I'm not bound by a legalistic lifestyle. I'm not bound by the law. But look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is the other side of it. Before we throw away all of our Bibles and think that it's not about what I do, all I have to do is say a prayer and I'll go to heaven. Before we go down that road, let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 17. The New King James Version says this. Do do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. Come on, this is going to set some people free today. See, last week you could say it was more for the world. Identifying sin. See, no one in this room, if you have confessed Jesus as your Lord, you should no longer be dominated and ruled by sin any longer. Period. But here's the other side. When we become a believer, we think we can throw out the book. We've said a prayer. I'm going to heaven. That's the end of it. And Jesus says right here, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. What does fulfill mean? Fulfill means this. It means to complete. It means to accomplish. And it means to finish. Jesus came not to destroy, get rid of, ban the law. He came to complete it, accomplish it, and finish it. So man sins. Man's living wrong. In Genesis 6, it got so bad that a man named Noah is called to build an ark with him and his family, put a bunch of animals in it, and God's going to wipe the whole earth because of sin. Because of evil. That's how much God hates sin. And so God implements something. I'm going to help you guys out. I'm going to show you right from wrong. I'm going to show you where you're missing it. But there's still a promise that's even greater than the law itself. The promise of his son, the promise of the seed that was going to come and redeem mankind back into the kingdom. So Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law that my father introduced when man kept sinning and needed to know right from wrong. I haven't come to destroy it. I have come to finish it. I have come to complete it. I have come to accomplish the very thing that the law could not do. 
Not only have I come to reveal right and wrong, I have come to empower you to live right from wrong. Do we see this? Matthew chapter 23 is one of the greatest oracles of Jesus. It's right before he's about to go to the cross. You've got to remember, Jesus came preaching a kingdom. Jesus didn't talk about heaven. Jesus didn't preach about heaven. Jesus didn't even talk about being born again. He talked one time, mentioned being born again one time, in the middle of the night to a man named Nicodemus. Two o'clock in the morning. I mean, you think he had all those opportunities, 5,000 people, 20,000 on the hillside, you know, feeding 5,000 uh, women, not including or men, not including the women. And the children. I mean, all of the opportunity to mention, here's what you need to do. Accept me in your heart. You need to be born again. You need to be baptized. And then you'll go to heaven. But he never talked about that. What did he talk about when he had all those people sitting around? The kingdom of God is like this and the kingdom of God is like that and the Kingdom of God is like a field, and the kingdom of God is like a lost coin. The kingdom of God is like a pearl. The kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in a field. The kingdom. And he came preaching the kingdom so much that even his own followers thought he was literally coming to restore a natural kingdom that would take over the Roman empowerment that was ruling over them. These people are Jews. And Romans have just come in, taken over their entire nation, and said, you're going to do things our way now. Well, Jews don't want to live according to what the Romans... I mean, they, they set up tax collectors that are now going to tax them. On top of the tax that they already owe, the Romans are going to tax them on top of that. And these tax collectors are corrupt. The tax collectors are taught, look, man, if you want, you can add a little bit extra and keep a little for yourself. So someone might have owed four denarius in taxes and the, the, the uh, tax would come in and say, you owe eight. No, this says I owe four. No, you owe eight. And you have to pay it. And he'd pocket the other four. In fact, there were even some Jews. Matthew, the one who wrote this book, was one of them. He was a tax collector. He decided enough of this Jewish stuff. I might as well just go live for them. He sold out. Sold out from the Jewish community, Jewish tradition, and said, dude, look at me. I am loaded. Just do what the Romans tell you to do. You'll you'll be fine. So he's hated by his own people. And that's the guy that Jesus chooses. This is what is going on in this day and age. And Jesus comes and preaches the kingdom. And we're thinking, his followers are thinking, dude, this guy is going to tear down the Roman government. This is what we need right here. That's how much he preached the kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 23, he talks to a group of people called Pharisees. And for as many of us that like to think of of Jesus as a nice, gentle, you know, kind man that, you know, hugged children all the time and was petting sheep and, you know, walking around just, you know, healing everybody and helping old ladies cross the street and the whole bit. uh, You would be really surprised if you actually read this. And you see what Jesus has to say. 
Jesus came down the hardest. Not on sinners that didn't know the way. He came down the hardest on the legalistic religious crowd that tried to prove the way and enforce the way. Look what he says here in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, New King James Version. Let me get there myself. Matthew 23. Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. He's not telling them to live opposite of the way they're living. He's not telling you to not follow the law and the commandments. But look at his next statement. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. And here was the very risk of the law, that it would set up people that would just preach the law and teach the law like this is what you got to do, but then not even do it themselves. These people thought they were safe. These people thought they were righteous. These people thought they had it all together. Because as children, from the age of five, they could quote the entire Old Testament. Were raised in it. Indoctrinated in it. Studiers of it. The scribes are the ones that wrote down the Old Testament word for word. And they didn't have, you know, book printing companies back then. They could just run it down to the machine and just print a whole bunch. They had to write it down every single time. Every single copy had to be handwritten. That's all these people did was just sit at a desk and rewrite the Old Testament over and over and over. I mean, if you don't learn the letter and learn the law from writing it that many times, then there's something wrong with you. These people knew the law. And yet Jesus is identifying, do not do as they do. Why? Verse 4, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, for they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Let's read this in the New Living Translation. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law. He's not disregarding who they are, but he is going to disregard what they do. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. I mean, these are people that would pray on the corner loud, where everybody could see them, everybody could hear them. Thanking God that they were not a sinner like the one standing next to them. And Jesus is disregarding this lifestyle. What's he saying? You are a bunch of legalistic 
hypocrites. You preach and you teach, do this and do that. But you don't even do it yourselves because obedience without the right heart is disobedience. And what we have to be careful of as a church is that we're not hammering people with the book and not following up with grace and with love. Look, I have no problem bringing the word to somebody. Well, they might not accept it. Well, that's the problem. Jesus went to the cross and was never guaranteed that any of us would accept it, yet did it anyways. Because the word of God reveals the problem. But then what does it say Jesus did? He was moved with frustration. No. He was moved with anger. No. He was moved with uh, sympathy. Usually that's the one of the two that we pick. We either pick to be frustrated and angry at the person sitting, or we choose to be sympathetic. Well, I, I feel your pain. I, I know what you're going through. I, you know, I've been there. We're all sinners, man. Just, just keep on trying. Keep on going. Jesus wasn't sympathetic to their problem. He was compassionate. Compassion is sympathy with power. Sympathy just grabs the other person's shoulder and says, we're, we're all there. We're, we're going to make it. I know what you're feeling. But compassion says, I see where you're at. How can I get you out? That's compassion. If anybody had the opportunity to throw the book at them, if anybody had the opportunity to throw a rock at a woman that has committed adultery, see, that's why he identified. Which one of you has never sinned? You cast the first stone. It's not about what you teach and not about what you preach and not about what you get up and do in front of everybody else. If you literally have gone your entire life without sinning, why? Because the law, even those that held to it the strictest and the tightest, still were sinners. The only one that had the opportunity and had the power to pick up a rock and throw it at that woman was Jesus himself. And what did he do? He was moved with compassion. But what did he say to her afterwards? Go and keep on sinning. Just, just don't worry about it. Keep on doing what you got to do. Or did he say, go and keep on sinning, but I'm going to the cross. I'm going to take care of this thing. But until then, you're, you're all right. Keep on sinning. <laughs> he just asked a woman that had no opportunity to ask Jesus into his heart, go and sin no more. Wow. Wow. There was one time that they brought a, a, a layman down through a roof on a stretcher. And Jesus was going to heal him. And the Pharisees and Sadducees in the back, the legalistic ones that are just doing everything for show, think in their minds. How, how, is, this, how is this man going to... He, he contains the power to do this. He says, which is easier? 
Now, which is harder? Which is easier? To tell this man to get up and walk or to forgive his sins? I had the opportunity to forgive a man's sins. You know, it's funny because we see it backwards now. Which is, they expected him to heal the man before he could forgive the man. Today, we expect forgiveness before we expect healing. We've swapped it today. But Jesus is identifying here that legalistic rule binding. See, we're not meant to be bound by the law, but we are meant to be bound to the law. We were not designed to be bound by the law under this this unreasonable burden. But there is a law that we are bound to because of what Jesus did. Because of the price that he paid. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2. Actually, let me do this. Let me go to Ephesians chapter 4 first. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Because Ephesians chapter 2 is going to take us right into next week. Are you getting something this morning? Amen. We need grace, people. People don't need the book thrown at them. They need grace. They need to understand that everything that's written in this book, you can do. You can live because of what Jesus Paid for you. Made available to you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, 15. But speaking the truth in what? Love. Speak the truth in love. Why do we have such a hard time with this? We either speak in love and accept the person with their sin, or we speak the truth in Not accepting them at all. I wanted to read this to you that I saw on Facebook from a pastor. It was a quote from somebody else. And this is what it says. It says, it is sad to see how some Christians have polarized truth and love. Instead of uniting these qualities, they've separated them. Some Christians are so concerned with truth or their version of truth that they will fight, accuse, attack, malign, and do everything short of murder to destroy those who disagree with them. Others are so concerned with love or what they think is love that they water down the truth, compromise, and sell out to the enemy. Both extremes are wrong. Truth is a mighty weapon, but it is even mightier when it is united with love. Love is an invincible power, but it is even greater when it is united in truth. Blessed are the balanced, for they shall be like the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to be balanced in our belief. Amen. We have to be balanced. We have to know the truth 
but operate in love. Nobody hates the sin more than God does. But nobody loves that person more than God does. And if we're going to represent Jesus on this earth, then we have to understand what grace looks like. And grace isn't a covering. Grace isn't a forgetting. Grace is an empowering that says everything that you couldn't do before. Jesus has come. He's paid the price and he has fulfilled the law. He's finished it. That which grace could not do. Grace would identify right and wrong, but it couldn't empower you to do right from wrong. But Jesus came and he says, I have come to fulfill the law. I'm identifying right from wrong and I'm empowering you to do right and rule over wrong every time. That's what Jesus came to do. And in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 8. We all know this verse. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift. Of God. Jimmy, pull up Romans 5 17. Romans 5 17. We have been saved by grace through faith. Guys, we are not saved because we hold everything that's in this book. We have been saved to hold and obey everything that's in the book. Grace does not excuse us from obeying what this book says. I'm telling you right now, obedience has always been God's greatest demand. Obedience has always been what God has required. And it still is what he requires today. And the reason that you and I can obey the word with the right heart, not to show men, but to show God, is because of the grace that Jesus has supplied to us. So that we could understand this verse. If by one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who received the abundance of grace. And of the gift of righteousness will what? Reign in life. Sin no longer has control over you because of the grace that has been revealed. God isn't just trying to show you right from wrong. He's now empowered you to live right from wrong. You need grace. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. Well, they, they need to be set free from that. No, they need Jesus. Well, they, they need deliverance from that. No, they need Jesus. Because Jesus has resourced to us grace that now empowers us to do everything this word says. We know if we obey the one law, love the Lord your God. If you Obey in love towards God. You'll obey every other command that follows. Look, if you love God, you'll put him first. If you love God, you won't steal. If you love God, you won't commit adultery. If you love God, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you love God, he said this, it is identified by those who love me because they keep my commands. 
Obedience is still a demand that God has for his people. Obedience is still what God is requiring even today. But I've got exciting news for you today that God has supplied to us the greatest ability to obey every piece of the law. We've been set free from the law, the Bible says. How have we been set free from it if I don't have to obey it? You've been set free from its weakness. Just looking at it, but not able to do anything about it. Now we can look at it and do something about it. Now I can look at the law and I can do something about obeying the law. I can see, do not commit adultery. And I know I have the power not to commit adultery. I have the power to keep and guard my mind by Christ Jesus. I have the ability and the power not to sin, not to let sin rule and dominate in my life because grace has provided me the power to obey the law. We've got to understand grace. This is not a church. This is not a church. We will not be a church that just throws the book at you. Here's what you did wrong. Just a sinner. Yeah, you're a sinner. You need Jesus. But here's the exciting thing. Is when you receive Jesus and when you receive His grace, you're no longer a sinner. If you are saved, you do not need to call yourself a sinner. Let me just make that clear. You are not a sinner any longer. Well, I'm just a sorry sinner. I don't know how many times I've heard that from people that confess and profess to have made Jesus their Lord. I'm sorry that they've told you that all your life. I'm sorry that no one's ever taught you that you're not just a sorry sinner anymore. You were a sinner. You were saved by grace through faith. Now you're a believer. So let's allow the grace that we've received empower us to not sin anymore. Look, either you're in charge or you're not in charge. Grace has come so we can be placed back in dominion once again. Well, I just can't seem to shake that thing. I just can't seem to. Every time it shows up, I want to do it. Because you're not getting in the Word. Because what you do with the Word determines what it will do for you. Jesus said, if I abide in you and you abide in me, you will bear fruit. If you're bearing bad fruit, then you're putting in bad seed, period. I just can't seem to change my mouth. I just keep on cussing. Well, quit getting around people that cuss. Quit quit, quit listening to those type of words. Quit planting that stuff in you. It just seems to just slip out. I I don't know. You know what we do when we do that? We weaken grace. We weaken grace. God never intended for sin to be stronger than grace. And it never will be. The only reason that we don't operate in grace and we still operate in sin is because we haven't applied the grace that God has made available to us. Grace is an empowerment. Grace, we said this last week, has more to do with your future than your past. Grace is not something that shows up on Sunday morning to erase what you did on Saturday night. 
Grace is something that shows up on Sunday morning that instructs you and empowers you to live differently Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Sunday should not be the only day you don't smoke. Sunday should not be the only day you don't cuss and don't drink and don't say those things to your wife and don't treat your kids that way and don't do this and don't. Sunday's not the only day for that. The church is a lifestyle. The church is who you are. And this is not about condemnation. I just feel so terrible, Pastor. Why you just really beating me down? No, that's called conviction. That's called the Holy Spirit showing up and saying, this is wrong. We're identifying a problem, but now we have the power to change it. The law identifies it. People just want to show up. You're just sorry, sinner. You're never going to make it. No, I'm telling you that you can make it because grace is available to empower you, to equip you, to never do that again. There are people in this room right now that have experienced the grace of God. Experienced the grace. I, man, I, I could not hold my tongue. I could not keep from getting angry. I could not quit smoking or dipping or drinking or doing this or doing that. There are people in this room that have quit, not on their own power. Because sin is powerful. Sin is strong. But His grace is strong. His grace is more powerful. And they got a hold of that grace. They realized that God has empowered me. That His Son came and paid a deep, full price. And then I'm not saved because I quit doing those things. I'm saved so I can quit doing those things. Father, right now I pray for every person in the sound of my voice. No matter what we struggle with, no matter what we deal with, no matter what we seem is too strong to overcome, I pray right now that they come to know the overcoming, empowering power of grace in their lives. Father, we've been identified right from wrong. We've seen the difference. But Father, we have not walked in the full manifestation of your grace. Your grace that changes us. Your grace that empowers us. Your grace that causes us to live differently, talk differently, think differently. But Father, but because we have accepted Jesus as our Lord, grace has been revealed. The greatest price has been paid. And now we will reign in this life. We're in demand. We're in control. We have dominion. We do not let rain. We do not let sin reign in our bodies any longer. Father, I thank you that we continue to receive a clarity, a revelation and understanding. Give us spiritual wisdom and understanding of what your grace is, how it operates in our life, how we apply it in our life. Because what we want to be changed. We don't want to live like the world and talk like the world and think like the world and respond like the world. We are called to be different. We're in the world, but not of it. And you have supplied the greatest power, the greatest resource. No longer will we dumb down grace so that it just covers our past. We are going to allow it to be powerful to move us into the future that you have for us. We thank you for this this morning in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.